Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. We are taking this first whole section of the year and doing a deep dive in the Gospel of John with the intentionality of just centering our life and our learning on Jesus and his teaching and his actions and all of it. We are, as Sam said this morning, also in the beginning of the season of Lent, that annual period in the church calendar, the capital C historic church calendar, where we take a period of time reflecting off of the 40-day journey of Jesus in the wilderness, his experience of 40 days, we now experience in 40 days. That was a period of preparation for Jesus as he was about to start his ministry on earth. And in our season of Lent, in our 40-day journey, we want to feel the waiting, the longing for a resurrected Savior. In a world that really has gotten very, very good at quick fixes and instant gratification, it is okay to practice the discipline of waiting and longing. And it is just that. It's a discipline. Like the discipline of fasting. It's a discipline to push into a waiting. It's an intentional choice. And we're leaning in to a holy hunger. And it makes that encounter at the end of Lent uh, with our resurrected Savior even sweeter because we've allowed ourselves to feel that hunger. So in a busy world, Lent reminds us we cannot rush to Resurrection Sunday. It slows us down. And as I was thinking about that in the start of this season of Lent and then found us in this passage this week, it felt kind of extra sweet because this passage, the pace of it, the pace of this story is actually really slow. We feel the waiting in this passage, even though it's short on paper. We feel the waiting while Jesus stops and just draws in the dirt two separate times. We feel the waiting when the weight of Jesus's words sink in and people start walking away one at a time. There's a slowness in the pacing of all of this. And at the end of the waiting, we're left with a very simple exchange. Words of mercy and renewal between a sinner and a savior. These words spoken over her, her life just literally on the line and she leaves with words of mercy. Can you imagine being her in this story? I want us to just take some time this morning. Kristen read the entire passage for us. We're gonna take some time to do an imaginative reading, to put ourselves into different spots in this story. So first, let's put ourselves in her place for just a couple minutes. You have been caught in the act of adultery. Just think about that for a minute. It's beyond embarrassing. It's probably more like devastating. Not only would you feel so physically exposed and vulnerable, but your dirty little secret has in an instant become very public knowledge. It's really embarrassing. It's devastating. This whole crowd surrounding you knows, knows what you've done. And now this group of teachers and Pharisees, religious big deal people, they make you stand in front of a crowd. In verse three, it says she's made to stand. How do you feel? I mean, number one, I feel so much shame 
when I enter into where she is, in her shoes. The shame feels palpable. I am being forced to stand in this crowd while my sexual sin is just like out there in the air for everyone to see. And it's being announced with their words, spoken over me as my truth. Not just to condemn me, but they're actually doing this in a way that is using her as a prop, a visual prop for their argument that they're making. Because that's what this passage tells us. This is actually about their argument. They've got beef with Jesus and they are using me and I feel exposed. To them, that's all she is. She's the visual prop to get to their ends. We'll get back to that in a minute. But she's being made to stand there with that scarlet letter of her sin just right on display for all to see. I feel like the shame is palpable. But honestly, if I get into her shoes, I'm also pretty mad. The reason I'm fiery mad at the inequity is that I was caught in the act of adultery. Where's my partner? He was there too. It takes two to tango. Yet somehow I've been targeted unequally for this purpose here. Maybe I don't want him dead. Maybe I'm not so mad about it that I want him to be up here accused and being threatened to be stoned with me. But like, I'm pretty mad. It feels unfair. I'm feeling targeted. But despite the shame and the anger throughout this whole exchange, I'm standing there silent because I have no defense. They're not wrong. I was caught doing the actual thing they said. I was caught in that sin. They're not wrong. I did that. And I'm just standing here exposed and angry and full of shame. And everybody knows who is standing in this crowd what the law of Torah says. Everyone here is a people who are following the law of Torah given through Moses. And that law says that an adulterer should die. It says that. Leviticus 20.10, Deuteronomy 22.22, neither one of them actually says they should be stoned, but it does say that both the adulterer and the adulteress, both parties, not just such women like these people are saying, but both parties should be put to death. It's written in the law. Now listen, we don't have time today to go into the fullness of the, the law, but what we want to remember and hold in front of ourselves is that the law was designed so that the people of God could be holy and reflect God's character to one another and to the world. Leviticus 20, starting in seven says, consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. And then goes on a few verses later and says, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, the wife of his neighbor, both adulterer and adulteresses are are to be put to death. So if I'm in her shoes in this moment, I have no recourse. I I don't have anything I can say. I was caught, it was a sin, and I stand there in this prolonged silence, being used as a visual prop. And it's not really about me at all, but it's an attempt to trap Jesus. So Jews at this time, in this location, were actually not allowed 
to execute anyone without Roman permission. So there's a whole other element. And scripture tells us Jesus knew this was a trap. Jesus knew they were really after him, not after this woman. What the crowd is asking is, are you going to adhere to the law of Torah and say stone her and get in trouble with the Romans? Or are you going to be compassionate like we keep hearing in all these stories about you and go against the law of God that is clearly written? Moses said this, what do you say? It's a trap that they've laid out for Jesus in verse five. And Jesus stoops down. Can you feel the sense of anticipation from both sides as he just stops everything to doodle in the dirt? If I'm back to being in the woman's shoes, I'm thinking, how long do I need to just stand here? So exposed and vulnerable and silent and ashamed and on display. And if I'm putting myself in the shoes of the challengers, I'm thinking we have got him now. It is lose-lose for Jesus. What's he writing in the dirt? We actually have no idea. That's the short answer. We don't know. And apparently it wasn't the most important thing for us to know, or it would have been recorded. But when we think about what we do know, we see it is clear. Jesus is not rushed. He is not flustered. And he is in control of his own timeline in this moment. He's on his timeline, not theirs. And eventually he straightens up and says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. They slowly clear away one at a time as they process this unexpected answer. We posed to him this or this, and he said something totally outside of either of those. And as they sit, let's put ourselves in their shoes now. As they stand around him and those words sink in. We started with such confidence. We totally had him. But as the words sink in, we just took a huge bite of humble pie. It slows down each one of us to stop and process and to come to the same eventual conclusion. I am in no place to play judge and jury and executioner to somebody else. We've come to condemn her, but now we leave feeling our own condemnedness as we process Jesus's words. It's a sobering reminder of our own mistakes that we all fall short of the glory of God until only the woman and Jesus remain. Those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. He straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, now go and leave your life of sin. One of the commentators that I was reading this week pointed out the moment when he addressed her and said, you, he includes her. She's been a visual prop. He is taking her and including her into a story, into the relationship. She is no longer an object, a necessary evil, but someone who can now enter into a relationship with Jesus. He offers possibility of new life. He's drawing her in as a person, not a prop. And he says, go and sin no more. 
Now, we, if you were here a few weeks ago, we talked about this at the healing on the Sabbath. Remember, we talked about the fact that Jesus never breaks the law of God. He never contradicts or negates the law of God. Remember in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus isn't ignoring the law or pretending that this is no big deal. He names it a sin. It is a sin when he says, go and sin no more. In the Sermon of the Mount, we remember that Jesus actually teaches about adultery. He says, the law says don't commit adultery. I say this, don't even lust after anyone else. And so Jesus isn't denying that this is a big deal. He actually is very, very serious about the law. But he gets to the heart of of the law. And we see here the heart of the law is not about condemnation to sinners, but the heart, Jesus as the fulfillment of the law, is about life, restoration of life. That's the heart of the law. Actually, we learn in part during that Sabbath healing story from chapter five a few weeks ago, it says that the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son. So Jesus is rightly judging this as a sin. He is the only right judge. Their judgment is coming forth focused on death and damnation. And his judgment aims at deliverance and salvation. He's aiming towards freedom and new life. Neither do I condemn you. John 3, 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus's holy, just judgment is aimed not at condemnation, but to bring deliverance and salvation from the shackles of sin. New life, freedom from bondage, all of that. John 1, 17, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Christ Jesus. Grace and truth inbreaks directly into the messy, shame-filled muck of a sinful situation. Right into the midst of that comes grace and truth. Jesus teaches, it's not the healthy who need the doctor, it's the sick. But her sickness was publicly known on display. Their sickness, not so visible. But as they're faced with his words, they all have to come to terms with the fact that they too, even if we search ourselves, they too, we too can see every single one of them knew. I'm actually not at a place to throw that stone. This passage, this quick little passage, just lends itself to this kind of imaginative reading, just to read it slowly, to put yourself in, put yourself in the scene, meditate on it, allow the spirit to stir and teach us. We can feel the pace and the pauses. We can sit and wonder at what Jesus is drawing in the dirt. There's a curiosity that's fun to meditate on in this story. And I think we can really, really easily relate to the people. There are times when we can really relate to the sinner. We can feel that sense of shame when a sin of our own is exposed. You know that feeling, like that pit of your stomach, like, oh, not only did I do wrong, but everybody knows it. We know that feeling. We can relate to her. And if I'm honest, I really can relate to the ones judging 
I was thinking about this. Uh, this morning on the way here, I judged at least two drivers. Everybody except me drives wrong. I don't know. Do you guys do that when you're driving? Like, what are you doing? That's one of my easiest judging places. But like, honestly, if we're honest, the role of the judger is not that hard to relate to either. I don't think it's a stretch for us to relate to a sinner or a judge. I don't think it's a stretch. And I think that this story is good for us and it's humbling for us to meditate on on and sit in and allow ourselves to go into that story and encounter Jesus. But the thing I feel was stirred in me to talk about today is actually the relationship within a Christian community, within a, a community of people who are choosing to follow the way of Jesus, the relationship in Christian community with the sins of someone else. Now, a disclaimer for our time here today, I am, I am speaking about people who have chosen to follow the way of Jesus with one another, okay? I am not having space for our time this morning to talk about how we engage with the sins of the world. I think it was really great that Sam gave us that practice to pray into those spaces. That's really good. That's not for our focus today, though, because here, that's who we have here. We have a group of people who are all committed to following the law of Torah, the way of God, right? They're all in community where we've chosen to follow this same way of living. And that's what we're gonna translate it to. What do we do as people who have said we are choosing to follow the way of Jesus in our lives together? They had a shared understanding as Jews of following the law of God as given through Moses. They knew that this was God's design for their flourishing and that as a community, they therefore were to represent and reflect God's character out into the world. They understood that. So when we are talking about this, I wanna talk about how do we engage when there is sin um, among us in community as people who have said, I wanna follow the way of Jesus. Now, the world around us, what does the world around us say? I feel here two main ways to engage with what other people are doing. Number one, if it's not hurting anybody else, don't worry about it. That's the only, that's the only criteria. If it is not hurting another person, I don't, don't worry about it. That's one thing. And the second thing is to cancel them. Okay, just, that, that's just, just cancel them. Now, again, I'm not talking now today about celebrity culture. I'm just saying these are some common ways that our broader world says to engage with other people doing acts that are not great, right? Those are two common ways. What do we do within church? Because as a community of believers, we are committed not only to a relationship with Christ, but also with one another in a unique way. The fact is we're supposed to care for one another, not only when everything's good, but when one of us has fallen into sin. I feel like, you know, at first I was like, well, what do we do if someone sins? I think it's more like, what do we do when one of us does, right? We all know that we are in these positions that had us slowly reflect on ourselves and turn away. Well, scripture talks about that. Within the body of believers, how do we deal with this with one another? One of the teachings is from Jesus in Matthew 18. If your brother or sister sins, go point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they won't listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. You guys, I kind of didn't want to include this passage. This is actually really, really challenging stuff. To actually live this out is incredibly hard and it's complicated. 
but it is instructions on how to deal when we are faced with sin with one another. Why is it tricky? I think that it's especially tricky because uh, in situations where the hurt has been done to somebody else, this passage actually has been misused to force forgiveness too quickly, to go to forgiveness without reconciliation, restitution, and all those other words that go along with what true um, confession of hurt needs to muster up. It's been used, misused in the past to force something that is not actually being condoned by Jesus in this passage. We are not trying to cover up or force false forgiveness. Well, that is stumbly. We want to really do the hard work that Jesus is talking about in this passage of actually seeking after understanding and going through the work when a hurt has been done. And so the challenge of this passage is actually that there are ways to do this in community where we're supposed to work it out case by case in community with one another submitted to Christ and following the promptings of the spirit on how to handle these hurts. So even though this challenge, this passage is really challenging to live out, the truth remains that we know if I'm straying from God's design for my flourishing and our flourishing together as a community, if I'm straying, one of the ways that I might even know is through you, through each other. How I even am aware that my behavior has gone off track. I need you, we need each other to draw us back to repentance and forgiveness, to even know where our blind spots may be. I'm gonna read this little description that I think is beautifully written about um, like just how we, we can view sin. This is from Delighting in the Trinity. It's talking about what sin is, how we even identify what it is, right? The, the, the law is summed up, love God and love others, and that's the design for our flourishing. That's what we're created for. Well, then what went wrong? It was not that Adam and Eve stopped loving. They were created as lovers in the image of God when they could not undo that. Instead, their love turned. When the apostle Paul writes of sinners, he described them as lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Lovers we remain, but twisted. Our love misdirected and perverted. Created to love God, we turn to love ourselves and anything but God. So it, that's, that's like the piece that I think is really potent, right? Just, it's, a, it's still love. It's just been twisted. And sometimes I won't know that until my community helps me to see that. And that's the tricky part about engaging with each other, even in the messy places. James writes it this way in James 5, starting in 19. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember that. Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. It's assuming we need each other to call ourselves back. I think overall in this community, when I think about us, I think we actually do know that we all have sin. I don't think that that's the big shock to anyone. And I don't think that we're quick to throw stones at each other. We know about Jesus's teaching. Before you go after that speck in the other person's eye, get the log out of your own, right? So be careful in our tendencies to judge. What I'm challenged by in this encounter is the heart motivation in face of the reality of sin in a community, right? The heart motivation. Why did we want to accuse so badly? 
Why do we still want to accuse? These are the questions that this story stirred up in me, right? When I was growing up, just to be really honest with you, the social currency in my universe of high school was gossip. If you had it, it was a tasty morsel. It was so delicious and you couldn't wait to be like, do you know? I grew up so ingrained in the norm, just the norm of the gossip culture that I didn't know until much later and had to do some deep work, still have to watch myself because inquiring minds want to know. It's actually none of my business, right? So I, but that's one culture. That's one motivation to point out someone's sin. As where I grew up, it was that one. What's another one? We sometimes like to feel good about ourselves in revive. We can feel better about ourselves in relation to someone else not doing so good, right? That we don't even realize sometimes we're doing it, but that feels really good. Well, at least I'm not that. And it's sort of like a, a little a pat on the back kind of a thing. In a sense, that's what they're doing. They're using her fault for their intended gain. It's a, it's a using someone else to get something that you want um, for yourself, or maybe when you think about this for yourself, it is just more comfortable to avoid. And you know, you do you. And I'm gonna avoid that tough conflict of needing to do the wrestling that Matthew 18 is actually talking about. But then look at Jesus. Look at Jesus's approach. His genuine desire, the motivation of his heart is for complete restoration for this woman. That's what he's after for her. He wants to see her whole again he speaks words of life into that messy shameful exposed sinful moment that she's standing in he speaks life and those words of life and those words of restoration we have access to those because of Jesus the songs this morning Missy were so beautifully selected to remind us that that is how we have access to the only mercy and grace of God that can do the healing back to the Leviticus verse from the beginning right I am the Lord who makes you holy only the Lord can do the holy work what we do in community is lend each other words towards that healing that Jesus has already provided in love with a heart towards full restoration. That's our job, not the judgment. Jesus is the only one fit to judge. Our job is to seek after full restoration in a community where we actually want everyone to be thriving. And when we have to do that hard work of pointing out the hurt or the sin or the place that we're seeing, we do it humbly submitted before the Lord with a heart motivation truly designed towards that person's restoration. That's the only safe place to do this refining work together in the name of Jesus, amen? I wanna focus on that heart posture as when we are in community together. I was thinking today in the, this uh, trip through the gospel of John, we've been saying, okay, we wanna talk about Jesus, but now we wanna also make sure we leave time and space to talk with Jesus ourselves. And I was thinking today, like, however you came into this space this morning, maybe you really resonate more with the woman right now. Maybe you resonate walking in with somewhere where you know you have been in sin. Maybe you resonate with the shackles of shame, which are really, really tricky. 
and you need the freedom that Jesus offers, but you're struggling to find it. Maybe you relate more with the judges, the ones who want to judge others in righteous self-righteousness, right? Maybe that's just your posture and you can think, I know exactly where I'm acting that way towards blank, whoever it is. Whichever way you walked in, I want you to look at the story and see this. All parties were transformed because they encountered Jesus. There is transformation either way. Sinner or judge, all left transformed by the powerful restoration provided by Jesus. I'm gonna pray over us, but I just want you to feel the freedom to actually have a slow-paced encounter with Jesus. Bring the truest version of yourselves, whether you were clutching at a stone so excited to throw it, or whether you were already coming in, feeling a place where you knew was off and just feeling vulnerable, whichever version, no, Jesus transforms. Jesus is the one who speaks restoration and life directly into the situation where you find yourself today. So I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm just hungry for restoration right now. So let's just pray and transition to a time of reflecting back with Jesus. Jesus, we, we love you. And I'm, we carry in this 40 days a holy hunger for resurrection goodness. And while we're craving that goodness, we come before you just as our honest selves and speak where we're feeling that hunger. Holy Spirit, guide us to see the places where we are trying to step into the spot of judge instead of restorer, carrier of words of life, reminder to one another of truth and wholeness and healing that can be found only in your name, Jesus. I pray that you will move now as you are here. We are gathered in your name, Jesus. And so Holy Spirit, we honor your presence here. We pray that you will move in our hearts and actually bring tangible steps towards wholeness and healing and just um, right living with, with you, God, and with one another. We need each other. I thank you for your design of community. And I pray that you will move in our midst as we um, respond to this story and whatever it was that you were writing in that dirt, Jesus. Write it in our hearts right now. We love you. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.